Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Let's read the end of the chapter since we kind of stopped at verse 36. And let's read verse 36 through 41. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You know, it's kind of funny. It starts off in verse 36, and it sounds like a lighthearted thing. Hey, I got a great idea. Let's go check out how everyone's doing. And then it just takes this turn. You know, and what about him? No, and then there's this contention that takes place. Last week, we talked about contention that arose in the church when the, the Jewish believers from Judea came down to Antioch and they told the Gentile believers, you need to be circumcised. And there was contention and Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and with James and the others that were there and debated over these things. And they came to that resolution that it was not necessary that we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not by the works of the law and that burden should not be put on the Gentile people. And so that is done as they go back to Antioch. Paul's saying, you know, let's go check out how everyone is doing. Now, I wonder how prone we would be to go check and see how everyone's doing if you remember how things went for Paul when he was in that journey. Because he got kicked out of a couple of cities. He got stoned, left for dead. I mean, he got thrown, you know, stones thrown at him and left for dead. You got to watch how you say that. He... He was left for dead. I mean, it was not a good trip. It was not something that you'd think, oh boy, you know, let's, let's go to Disneyland kind of a trip. It was like, this was hardship. That's why Mark left. It was just difficult. The burdens and the, the hardship and probably sickness that they went through. And he says, let's go back and see how they're doing. And that heart that is concerned about others, more than concerned about himself, it just strikes me that he would care so much about those people and how they're doing that he would want to go back. And Barnabas wants to go with him, but Barnabas wants to take Mark, John Mark. Now, I've been saying it's his nephew, I think, and it's really his cousin. And so I'm, I'm sorry. It's a, a mistake on my part. As I was reading, I was going, it's his cousin. It's like, yeah, I think I've been saying it's his nephew. Anyway, it's his cousin. Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Not to be confused with his nephew. It's family, okay? Which is interesting because when it comes to family, things can get a little tense. Things get a little bit more serious. You guys who have family know and have dealt with family situations, know how that is when, you, when someone talks about your family, someone talks about your kids, someone talks about someone who you're close to, boy, you just, the fur goes up on the back of your neck if you have fur on your neck, and, and, and you just kind of get intense about, hey, what are you talking about? You know, this is, 
You see it all the time with people. Don't talk about my friend like that. Don't talk about my family like that. It's something that becomes personal. And of course you want to see your family do well. And it happens in ministry as it does everywhere. I know people who, you know, have family and, and they bring them involved in areas of ministry and at times it has failed. And it's like, why did you bring them? Well, it's my family. You know, they're my brother. It's my son. It's my, you know, it's my whoever. And they bring them in because you care. And of course you do. But what I thought about as I was thinking of this scenario that caused Barnabas to be, no, we've got to bring Mark. I, I thought of Jesus' words when his family thought he had lost it. They thought he had gone crazy and they were concerned about him, which makes me feel good, you know, that his family thought he, something was wrong with him. I have hope. Uh, they thought something's wrong with Jesus. We need to go rescue him. And his, they came up and they said, hey, your mother and your brothers, they're out here. And Jesus said, these here are my brothers, my sisters, my mothers. These who are hearing my words, these are my family. And what God has wanted to do and is wanting us to do is what we do with those who are closest to us. The love we feel towards our family, towards our children, towards our spouse, or towards those who are very close to us, God is wanting us to care in that deep way for others. And if we cared, if I cared about everyone like I do my children, then it would have a serious impact. Now, it's not the love that's limited, it's the time. Because you only have so much time. The love isn't limited. The love can continue to develop and develop and develop. You know, when Corrine and I got married, I, I loved my wife and I thought, man, this is the greatest thing. And then we found out we were going to have children and we were excited. And then we found out we were going to have twins. And eventually we were excited again. <laughs> and I didn't think, okay, when, when the boys were born, I thought, okay, now what I need to do is I have to take the love I have for Corrine, and I have to divide it in thirds. Okay, and now she gets a third, and then Jordan gets a third, and Samuel gets a third, and there. Okay, now, no. It was a, a whole new explosion of love that took place when I saw my boys, and I loved my wife even more. And then Daniel came along. I was like, oh, no, you know. But then I said, okay. And... and and I didn't say, oh, well, I need to divide my love again. I'll take the love I have for these boys and I'll split it one more time. And it didn't happen like that. And when Lauren was born, man, it, it, it just, there kept being this eruption of just love that I had. The love isn't the problem. That's not limited. The time is limited. The time is the battle. But you see, I think what God's intention was all along was that, we would consider each other family and we would care as if we're family and we would love each other as if we're family and we wouldn't show partiality to others we would care as much for everyone and later on we're gonna see that Paul does have this kind of feeling for Mark as we talked about Sunday when he desired Mark to be with him and I think that's something that God desires for all of us and as they're doing with this as, as they're ministering and just desiring 
to do, you know, Mark goes with Barnabas and Paul goes with Silas. Um, it didn't stop Paul and Barnabas's friendship. That friendship continued. Paul mentions Barnabas in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? He still supported Barnabas, and we know that he supported Mark. And so the contention didn't mean we don't like each other anymore. It just means we need to go our own ways. And it worked out fine. God did two works instead of just one. It's interesting that this is the last time we hear Barnabas' name in verse 39. It's not mentioned anymore. And, you know, what an amazing person this is. The short little glimpse that we have of this person's Barnabas. He was the one who brought Paul in to meet the disciples. When they said, no, this guy's a killer. We don't want anything to do with him. Paul said, no, he's okay. Paul was the one who went in and kind of mediated for Paul with the disciples and brought him into the fold. He's the one who put his neck out for him, extended himself. I mean, there's a, a verse in uh, chapter 11 of Acts, verse 24. I think you could put it as Barnabas's epitaph. It would be, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. What a great thing to be able to say about him. That's who Barnabas was. And what a, a powerful example he was of a believer who was compassionate, son of consolation, it means. Someone who's compassionate, reaching out for other people. What a great example he was to us. But nevertheless, there was a contention. Paul takes Silas. And Silas, it's interesting, because he was mentioned in verse 32 as coming from Jerusalem. He came down, and then he stuck around. He went back, apparently, for a period of time, but then he came back. He liked it there, and he just wanted to be there at Antioch, and Paul saw this, noticed this guy had a heart to, to reach these people, and so he said, why don't you come with me? I've been on a, a few trips where we've gone to different places, to Wales, to Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, and something happens when you go somewhere and you start investing your life in people. You get attached to the people. In fact, when I was thinking about this, just when I was going through the study tonight, I was thinking about someone who I know in Wales and I sent out a little message to him just thinking about you because I was. You know, every now and then you just think, oh, those people, they, they mean so much to me. And at the end of these trips, usually you have a time when the whole team will get together and everyone will talk to you. What's been going on in your heart throughout this trip? What's God been ministering to you? And at some point someone says, I want to come back. I don't want to leave. I remember last trip I had to Wales, there was a young man who said, I need to come back. I need to find out. I don't want to leave. Is there any way I can stay? I was like, no, you have to come back. You know, you, they can't afford you. You don't have a job. You need to come back, you know. But he still wanted to go back. It was something that was on his heart. Same thing in Mississippi when we were done with that week-long trip. And it was a lot of work. It was hard work. But at the end of it, there was a number of people saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I can't. I don't want to leave here. Your heart gets attached. Silas came down and he got bit. He got bit by the bug, and he just wanted to be there. He wanted to be with these people. He cared about them. And now Paul says, hey, come with me. You, you, that's what I want. I want that attitude. I want that spirit that you've got to want to care for these people. That's what God's looking for. And, and so he took that, and he ran with it, and he ran with Solus, Silas, and he took him. And from there, 
we know that Silas was from Jerusalem, so he is Jew, but we also know he was a Roman citizen, as we're going to see later on in chapter 16. So Silas had a lot of things going for him, things that Paul could utilize. And so he seemed like a good ch choice for Paul. And then it says he went through uh, Cilicia, strengthening the churches, Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. These are areas that were close to Tarsus, areas that he was familiar with, and also areas that there were a lot of contention with this whole regard of making the Gentiles submit to the Jewish regulations. And so Paul not only wanted to go back and strengthen the church, he wanted to make sure that this idea of you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the law, didn't start spreading. He wanted to keep that idea that you're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ prevalent in the church. And so he goes back wanting to keep the church anchored in the truth as it says there, you know, they're wanting to strengthen the brothers who were there as he went to that place. Now, let's go to chapter 16. <clears throat> let's read verses 1 through 5. He, Paul, came to Derby, an interesting name for a place. Makes me think of a hat. And then, <laughs> yeah, you were all interested in that. Anyway, he came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So Paul heads out and he goes to this place, to Lystra. Now, he'd been to Lystra earlier. We, we read about that in chapter 14. And this is actually five years later, even though it's only a chapter and a half ago. It's five years. Five years ago, Paul was there. And there's this guy named Timothy who's there. We know from Paul's letter to Timothy that he is his son in the faith, he says which means he actually led him to the Lord. In First Timothy, it tells us that in chapter 1, verse 2, my son in the faith. So five years ago, Paul led this young man named Timothy there. Five years later, he comes back and he sees that he's doing great. And how encouraging is that? When you share your faith with someone and they connect to it, and you don't see them for a while, and then you see them later on, and they're doing well. How great is that? Amen. I remember I used to teach the high school group when I was over at Calvary in Pasadena. And there was a number of kids that, we didn't have a huge group, but there were a few kids that were part of just about everything that we did. And I can remember them, you know, coming to my house. Karina and I would have them over, and we'd have a Bible study, and then we'd watch Miami Vice that was popular back then. And, and then, you know, we'd go out and do things at the beach, and, and we would, you know, just had a lot of activities and, and spent time with these kids, getting to know them. And they were all pretty squirrely, you know, as most high schools are, kids are. If you're in high school, forgive me, but it's true. Uh, 
it's just part of growing up. You, you, you've got a lot of things going on in your life. You're not really focused, you know, like you're going to be when you have to have a job and make a living and, you know, pay the bills and put gas in the car. Uh, those things become a little bit more prevalent. And, and so these kids were kind of just high school kids. And I remember talking to them, talking to them, and some of them just gave me headaches. You know, they were just constantly, you know, joking around. Or what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, you're wearing me down. But I, I really did care for them, really did. And years later, to find and hear about these kids and see where they're doing, there's a couple that actually got married, and they're serving in ministry up north. One of the kids uh, who's there, he's involved with Christian politics. And I remember one kid named Phil Sorcy, who was a great kid. And I remember having him actually do some of the studies, you know, devotions and things, because he's just so solid. And then I got a, a phone call from him later. He found me and found out that he's working with Wycliffe Bible translators and is ministering, you know, and... Man, I just felt like a proud papa, you know? I was like, way to go, Phil. You know, you just have this, man, and there's something about that just encouraged me to know that, you know, that time spent with these kids and all the, the squirreliness and all the things, and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, it's, my, my vision was just that they'd get out of high school alive, you know, and still believe in something. I mean, I, it was just such a tumultuous time and period and a lot of struggles. And to see them doing well, it was, it was great. It's great news. And to hear those things, it just lifted my heart. And I'm sure when Paul goes back and he sees this young man, Timothy, and he's doing well, in fact, he wants him to come along. And once again, we see, just like they did with Mark, who was just a young man, so was probably Silas. And here's Timothy. We see Paul pouring his life into these young men, which is interesting. Because if you want to keep the movement going, you've got to invest it in those who are young. Not only that, those who are young don't have the responsibilities of those of you who are older. <laughs> All of a sudden you get a family, you have responsibilities, you have payments, mortgages, those kinds of things. And all of a sudden you get anchored down. Get someone who's not involved in those things. And boy, yeah, those are the kids who wanted to stay in Wales. Those are the kids who wanted, you know, those are the ones who wanted to keep doing those things. They had the time, they had the availability, they had the energy to go and do those things. And so Paul got these young men, poured himself into that, and would see them along and they would go on to become pastors and leading congregations. In fact, Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. He's young, but don't worry about that. That's who God poured him, himself into. So we see a little bit about Timothy, that his mother was a Jew, which means that the, he was thought of as a Jew. If your mom was a Jew, you were thought of as a Jew more than his dad. Uh, because his dad was a Greek, he was still considered a Jew by the Jewish people because of his mother. But the way it's worded um, in verse 3 where it says they knew that his father was a Greek, it's actually in a past tense, which means his father wasn't alive any longer. And so Paul has him circumcised in verse 3. And, and 
you're probably thinking, wait, he just went through this whole thing about you don't have to be circumcised. And then in Galatians, we see that that even continues more so as he tells them Titus not going to be circumcised by no means. He doesn't have to be. And he gives that whole, if you're circumcised, you're not going to get any part of the kingdom of God. That's not necessary. So what's going on here? And what's taking place, Paul isn't changing his mind because Timothy is a Jew. It's not a matter of, well, this is necessary for you to be saved. It's a matter of, this is helpful to, for you to be used. Because you are a Jew, for you to get into the synagogue, it's necessary for you to be circumcised. And so, Timothy, I want you to count the cost here. Are you willing to go and, and be a part of this ministry? Because if we're going to go into these areas, to the synagogues, you won't be able to go in if you are not circumcised. Titus, you're a Gentile. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to be proselytized. It's not necessary. Timothy, this will be an advantage for us and the ministry if you're circumcised. And that's the point that is here. And again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it talks about to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. This is what it has to do with. Timothy was considered a Jew already. He didn't have to be proselytized, but the circumcision would help him to be available to do more ministry. That's why he did it, not because it was necessary for salvation. And so he had him circumcised. Timothy chose to do this because of the area that he lived in, the people knowing that his father was a Greek who did not apparently want him to be circumcised. Now he is, so he's able to go and minister with Paul wherever he goes. And as they traveled, they went to these places and they delivered the decision, it says in verse 4. And this is the things that they talked about in the past, uh, the past chapter, this decision that you don't have to be circumcised. <laughs> Poor Timothy. Anyway, except for you, Timothy. But so the churches it's, were strengthened in faith and they grew daily in numbers. It's interesting because with the freedom came the growth. They told them, hey, you guys, the kingdom of God is open to you right now where you're at like you are. And they said, great, we'll take it. Isn't it good to know that God meets us where we're at and that we don't have to first get to this level of spirituality? You know, I almost made it. I was almost at that level of spirituality, but then I went and, you know, blew it. And now I'm back to square one and I've got to climb the ladder back up to meet the requirements. To God says, eh, don't worry about that. I'll meet you right here, right where you're at. Okay? And they said, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. And once again, we see God does the work from inside and works his way out. It's not clean your life up together, uh, get your act together, clean your life up, and then you can come to me. It's like, I'll get you right where you're at and I'll start the work. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Does he have your heart? That's the question. That, that's the big question. Not, oh, is your life clean enough? Does he have your heart? Because where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And vice versa, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What do you treasure? Is it the Lord? Is it that relationship with God? That's what's necessary, and that's what took place here. Now, in verse 6, it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of 
Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. While they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is a curious passage. Uh, Paul's wanting to go to Asia. He's desiring to to do this, but he's kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And then later it says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. And what the heck does that mean? I don't know. We're not really sure. But I wish I knew. I wish I knew what it was like when the Spirit would not allow you to speak or to minister in that area. A lot of people believe, and a lot of the commentators that I read, believe that this had to do with a physical ailment that Paul had. In Galatians, we read about his time at this place in his life and ministry and missionary journeys, where he said, you know how it was through infirmity that I preached the gospel to you, and and if you could, you would have given me your own eyes. And a lot of people think that he suffered some ailment that made him practically blind so that he could not even go further. We know from the character of Paul and what we've read already and what we're going to continue to read that it took a lot to stop Paul. We saw that when he was stoned and left for dead, he got back up and walked back into the city. In chapter 21, we're going to read about how Agabus, the prophet, and the spirit said, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be bound and you're going to be set up. And Paul says, I'm willing to die. Let's go. And he kept going, even though this was told about him. And he said, yeah, that's that's probably true. I'm going anyway. That's just the kind of guy he was. So it doesn't seem like Paul would be like, oh, well, don't go to, you know, Asia. What do you mean don't go to Asia? I'm going to Asia just seems like that's the kind of guy he was. But something happened that took it to mean the Spirit of God said no. And maybe it was, bam, Paul's on his back. Okay, I guess I'm not going to Asia. I can't even see. I've been there where I've wanted to do something and illness comes upon me, a sickness or a situation that just stops me from moving in that direction. And it's not till later on I can look back and say, oh, That was God working in me. And it could be that there was an actual illness in Paul's life that just put him flat on his back so that he could not go. We don't know. We can't be dogmatic about that. I wish I knew what that was because something stopped him from going. And wouldn't we all like to know when Jesus says, no, don't go. No, don't do that. (laughs) It's like, I'd love to know, Lord, whatever that was. And, you know, it's like... I think sometimes maybe God leaves these things vague so that we will search, so that we will look harder. 
that we will listen more closely, that we will desire a little bit more fervently. In other words, if it was just, and Jesus did this, this, and this, we would think, oh, whenever those things happen, it Jesus saying no. And it's not that way. It's like, no, I'm not going to make it that easy. You've got to really pay attention. You've got to really be in the scripture reading, and you need to be praying, and you need to seek and find me with all your heart. And until you do that, yeah, I'm not going to let you know. I just want you to know that I, I do say no sometimes. When, Lord, when? Uh, you'll find out. <sighs> and so Paul doesn't go to these places, but instead what he's going to do is go into Europe. And, and it's almost like, I mean, he's going into Greece, and, and you know, he planned on going to these cities, and it's like, imagine a hallway that's taking place and you're wanting to go and this door's locked and this door's locked and this door's locked. But then at the end of the hallway, there's a double door that's open. And that's really what happens. And it's so important that we recognize that God is the one who has to go before us. Isaiah tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. You know, there, there were three astronauts that went up into space. It was an American, a Japanese, and a Russian. And they were going to do this space program where they were going to live in space for a year. And they found out that they had extra room in the spacecraft so that they could go up and travel. And so they said, hey, you guys, you can each take 140 pounds worth of whatever you want to on this trip. And so the American says, hey, my wife, she's 135 pounds. I can take her and... You know, I don't know, a few other things. The Japanese guy said, you know, I'm going to study. There's a lot of things I, I want to, to read and find out about. And so I'm going to take my books and I'm going to learn different languages. And I'm going to take that with me and all that gear plus and space. I'm going to just devote my time to studying. The Russian said, you know what? I love cigars. I'm going to take a year's worth of Havana cigars because we can get them in Russia. And so they all three go up with their extra equipment. They go flying, and a year comes by, and they come back, and, and here comes the, the American, and he comes out with his wife, and they got a brand-new baby, you know, and, and he's smiling, and they're, yay, first baby born in space. Everyone's like, woo, what's his name, Cosmo, you know, and they come out. And then the Japanese man comes out and he starts addressing everyone in all the different languages. You know, he starts talking to them in American and, in, you know, Japanese and in Russian. And everyone's, whoa, look at his, he spent that year and he's learned all these languages. Yay, and everyone claps and they're all excited. And the Russian comes out, he's biting onto a cigar and he's kind of scowling. He's all right. Okay, does anybody have a match? <laughs> <laughs> If the Lord doesn't go before you, if, it's, if he doesn't ignite what's taking place, boy, it's a waste of time. I know it's a rough analogy, but I heard it and thought it was funny. And it's so true, though. We, we don't want to break down a door where Jesus says no. We don't want to force something where he says no, because somewhere there's a double door that's a big yes. And so check the locks. Okay, they're closed, closed, closed. Boom, this one's open. I'm going for it. And that's what Paul did. He goes down into 
Europe basically into Macedonia and in verse 11 it says from Troas we put out and it's interesting too because in verse 10 we see the word we and us which shows that Luke is now a companion with Paul at this point and from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samoth whatever that place is Samothrace and the next day on to Nepolis and from there we traveled to Philippi a Roman colony and leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So he takes this journey on a boat that's about 140 miles, and on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So they get to their destination, and on the Sabbath they went outside the river. A lot of times they would have their meetings there at the river so they could do the ceremonial washing. And they sat down, and there were the women there. Now the reason it says they kind of expected to find a place of prayer, but then they talks about the women, if there were not ten men there, they could not have a synagogue or a rabbi to go there. And apparently they didn't have that. One of the reasons is it was a lot more difficult for a man to be proselytized into the Jewish faith than for a woman because he had to be circumcised. Weren't a whole lot of guys willing to go that far. I believe, you know, but that's okay. The women, they didn't have to do that. So it was a lot easier for the women to be proselytized than the men. Lydia believed in God. She was a follower she believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it didn't take much for Paul to minister to her and for her to become a follower of Christ. They were baptized there. They ministered to these people there. And then I, I love her spirit because she says, then stay with us. If you consider me a believer, stay here in our house with me. And she persuaded them. Now, she wouldn't take no for an answer. A few things that we know about Lydia, because she sold these purple garments and from Thyatira, purple was considered a luxury. It was a luxurious and expensive garment. They got that from certain uh, shellfish as well as certain roots that they would use to dye the garments this color. And Thyatira was a very uh, affluent place. And so, and Lydia has a house that's big enough to accommodate these guys, so she was most likely a person of means. And she goes back to this place, and those who are a part of her household could be her servants, and she persuades them to stay. And we see just this hospitality of this woman saying, this is incredible news, you have to stay with me. She has the means, and she's generous. And she puts them up, takes care of them, and we see that she's that convert. Now, it's interesting because Paul had a vision for Macedonia of a man calling him out, but there's this woman named Lydia there. And don't know where the guy is, but there's this woman named Lydia who seems to fulfill what's being called out there as she comes to faith. In verse 16, it says, Once we, when we were 
going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money of her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Interesting verses here. As they're going down, there's this one girl who's possessed by this evil spirit. And because of this spirit, she's able to, to give just a deceptive nature and tell people their fortune. She's like a fortune teller. And she's got people just following her. They're using her for, for a means of getting money. And she's going around telling them. And what she's saying is good. She's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. Well, that's great. But, you know, this is the kind of publicity you don't want. You don't want publicity from a girl who's demon-possessed, who's deceptive, telling people about you. Because now it's tainted by who she is. In other words... I don't want the truth of our message to be associated with a woman who is deceiving people. Because now they're going to associate us with her, and we're not the same. Yeah, what she's saying is true, but we're not the same. And it's important to understand these things, because even though what she's saying is true, the context of who she is matters, just like it does with us. And you can take things that are true from areas that are not Christian. But if you identify too much with that area, you're in trouble. Jesus had the same situation happen to him in Luke's gospel. What if, you know, they would, a demon would come out and say, this is the son of the most high God. And he, he shut them up, rebuked the demon. I'm not going to get my publicity from you because I don't want people to identify me with you. And so Paul was troubled, and it happened for many days. And so you could tell this is eating on him. Has that ever happened to you where something just keeps happening, you know, and it's like, what do I deal with this? How do I deal with this person who's bugging me or this situation? How am I going to address it? And you're just kind of troubled by it. And finally he says, enough! And then he, you know, tells the demon come out. And it's like, why didn't you do that in the beginning? You know, just, that seems easy. But then we can kind of see why. In verse 19 it says, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So we see that you know by doing this, it did cause a problem. What's sad is that these people were using this girl for their own means, their own gain, and they really didn't care about her. They just cared about the money. And that happens a lot. That happens in so many circles. You think of uh, just prostitution, and that happens in the United States. How many people are being brought from overseas, from Korea, even in from Mexico, and are basically slaves and are being used as prostitutes to make money here in the United States? They're being used for money. They don't care about them. In fact, if you were going to go and try and help get these people out, these ladies out of that, they'd kill you. 
Why? Because that's their means of making money. They don't care about the person, they care about the money. And it's a sad statement and testament of human nature and what it can lead to. And so they don't care about her and they take them, they drag them there. They're going to put an end to this. You guys just ruined our business. We got to deal with you. And so they drag him before the magistrate, the governor there. And it says, these men are, are throwing our city into an uproar. They've caused this, this problem and advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, what did they mean by that? Because Judaism was an accepted religion for the Roman government, but Christianity was not. And the Roman government wasn't real fond of new religions coming into play. And so here they're trying to stifle them because this new religion is coming about and they're putting the hammer down on them, trying to stop them from just coming forward with these things. And the crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas, verse 22, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commended was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. This is great. In verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and, all, and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Boy, what a turn of events this is. First of all, what a great story. Not that they were beaten and thrown in jail, but when they are in jail, verse 25, they were praying and singing hymns. It's interesting that prayer leads to praise. As they're praying to God, they end up singing. And when they're put in stocks, this isn't the kind you find on Wall Street, okay? This is, I mean, they are chained and locked. And what they believe was happened is they had a board that they would put their feet through and their legs would actually be spread very uncomfortably apart so that it was painful just to stay in that position. And in this position of discomfort, they're praying and they start singing. And I love it says the other prisoners were listening to them. Do you know that people are listening? People are listening to your life. See what comes out of it. I know many times when people come to one of our gatherings and they're there and they hear you singing. It touches them. Because, wow, they're, they're, they're singing to their God. And as you're doing this, praise going to your God, People are listening. And then there's the earthquake. The stocks fall off. 
remember back a few chapters when Peter and John were released from prison when Herod took them captive? What happened? Herod had that person put to death who was responsible for them. So this guard thinks, if I'm doomed. I'm going to be put to death, so I might as well kill myself. Because if, you, if a prisoner escaped under your watch, you're responsible. And so he says, it's done. The doors are open. They're gone. I'm going to kill myself. But Paul, real, realizing this, says, we're still here. Don't do yourself harm. Now, first of all, why is Paul still there? Why didn't he just bolt? All right, I'm out of here. You know, boom, and he's gone. For some reason, I don't know, he, he's sticking around and maybe... Just as they're like wondering what's going on, they saw and recognized that this jailer was going to kill himself, and he stopped him. And the jailer's response, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why would he say that? Well, he's probably listening to. He was probably hearing these men singing. He probably knew the story of what had happened. He probably knew all the testimony that happened with this girl who had been possessed, who is now a believer, and I'm sure he had insight into all the reasons why they were there. And so he asked them, what must I do to be saved? And it's interesting, their response, they don't say repent. They just say, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. And it makes you think that the idea of belief has the idea of change. That believing is enough to really make you change. If you believe something enough, then it's going to cause change to take place in your life. And so... This takes place, they, he, he washes their wounds, he sits them in front of the table. I mean, it was a second ago I was in prison in a torturous place, now I've got this guy washing, cleaning me up, setting a meal before me, and taking care of me, and the guy's happy. The guy's overjoyed that, you know, I am now believe in God and my whole family. And verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrate sent the officers to the jailer with the orders to release the men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrate, have ordered you and Silas to be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Now why would he say now you can go? Maybe it was the earthquake. You know, these guys who are preaching this religion, we throw them in jail and there's an earthquake. Maybe God's trying to get our attention. Who knows? But he says, okay, you can let them go. So he tells them you can go. And Paul's response is really pretty powerful. And we're going to end here soon. It says, Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens and threw us in prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. The reason they're alarmed is because you are not allowed to beat a Roman citizen without a trial, without a fair hearing. Otherwise, you're in big trouble. It's deep bandini. And so they go, oh my gosh, these guys were Roman citizens. We should have done something. We, we shouldn't have done this to them. And so they go there to try and smooth the situation out. In verse 39, they came to appease them and to escort them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. You guys can go now. Go, go, bye-bye. Go on. And, and after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Now, why did Paul do this? He didn't file a lawsuit against the people that threw him in prison if he really wanted to make trouble. But what he did was stick around long enough to make a point that these new people who had come to faith, who were now at Lydia's house, these believers, maybe some of them were the jailer and his friends and family, you know what? We need to protect these people 
we're going to let a point be made. Hey, you can't treat us this way. It's unjust. We have a right to say the things that we're saying. And with that, okay, now there's a new church planted in this city, and we need to leave them alone. Because this guy who's a Roman citizen, he's got something on us. And they're with him. And so most likely what's taking place here is Paul is actually protecting the other peoples who are going to be staying there. Even though he leaves, he's concerned about them. Enough so that he wants to make sure that they're taken care of. And, and what a neat attitude that is. He has all along from the beginning of what we read, he cares about the people to go back and see that they're doing well. And now even when he's leaving, he's wanting to make sure that they're taken care of. And, and what a great attitude to have. And I hope we would have that attitude as well. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to learn from. I mean, gosh, just all these things that Paul went through. Lord, the places he traveled, the hardships he dealt with, the struggles he dealt with with his own brothers and contention over what to do, where to go. Lord, we all identify with that. And yet you're still with him. And those doors that got closed so that he couldn't go to Asia. Lord, boy, there's been so many times in my life where it feels like the doors have slammed shut and I just wonder, what, what are you doing? Only to have you open other doors. And Father, you, you never stop us. You know, it, maybe one door closes and there's another door yet to be opened. And I know it, it can be just hell in the hallway sometimes, Lord, but when that door does open up, we find that you're ready and preparing us for a work that's incredible, that you've got people there for us to encounter and a work that is just waiting to be done. And we see Paul doing that work, and even though it lands him in jail, Lord, that ends up turning out for the good in this jailer's life and his household, and then even a church starting in this city, all because of one man's obedience to you. Lord, what, what could you do with all of us if we were obedient to you? If we cared less about ourselves and more about others, ah, gosh, God, so much could take place in our community and in our family and our places of work and our schools uh, if we just had this heart. And I pray we would capture this heart, Lord, that you would minister, to it, minister it to us, that we would take hold of these things, that we would leave here tonight just wanting to be just even more like Paul was here. So on fire, so diligent to pursue you and the work you have to minister to other people. Lord, it consumed his life. I pray it would consume mine, God. Bless, I pray, Lord, these things. May they stay in our minds after we leave here, and may they take root in our life. I do pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.